Have you ever felt like a mosquito at a nude beach? You know what to do, you just don't know where to start. <laughs> There's a whole lot of places we could start when talking about mixing religion and politics together. And I know some of you, you came just for the first time today to kind of investigate what we're going to even talk about, what's this church going to say about this. Some of you stayed home specifically because you didn't know what we were going to talk about. Some of you think we should never talk about religion and politics. You want to, you want to cause some craziness across the table at a restaurant on a double date? Like bring up religion and politics if you don't know, if, if you don't know where anybody else stands. So why in the world would we do this in church, especially Based on the reality that when you mix religion and politics, usually do you know what you usually get? You, you usually really tick people off. That's what, that's what happens. It really tick people off. I, that was funny to me, okay? All right. And uh, already, already uh, here at the broadcast location before our first service uh, and even in between services, I had a few people say, Pastor, don't make sure you say this. I, 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 hey, give, them, get, get, give it all. Give it all. Don't hold back. And, and I, I promise you this, I promise by the end, uh, I think we have the capacity for me to be an equal opportunity offender today, that I will be an equal opportunity. I may not say it strong enough for you, or I may say it too strong for you. And I want you to know that I understand that. I get it. Um, and so if you have complaints today, if you have a frustration over what I say, whether you're online or one of our locations, I want you to know that you can email me at Pastor Keith at First Methodist of Gary, Indiana. Dot com. Okay? And I'm sure Pastor Keith would love to get your emails, whoever that might be. Okay? Now, the truth is, uh, nothing divides like politics, it seems like these days. Like, nothing seems to be quite as divisive like politics. And the, tr the truth is, because nothing tends to divide like fear. Fear will cause all fear will divide marriages, will divide vision. It obviously divides churches. It divides friendships. Nothing seems to divide like politics because politics, especially in today's day and age, tend to be driven by fear. And the number one qualifier of fear is if people begin to feel loss. Afraid of losing control, afraid of losing relationship, afraid of losing love, losing opportunity, losing wealth, losing our culture, losing our progress, losing our freedoms. Whenever there's this feeling of loss, it brings fear and nothing tends to divide us like politics. And, 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 it's, and it's crazy, like, like here, you usually aren't hearing like, mm, 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 vote for me. It's more like, did you know Biden hates kittens? Like, Trump kicked a grandma. Like, it, it is, that's, you know, that's, you're going to lose everything, If we reelect this president, it's the end of the world. If we elect a socialist Democrat, it's the end of the world. If we elect a, elect a Republican, you're going to lose your right to vote. If we elect a Democrat, you're going to lose your guns. Like we're afraid of what we might lose. And so we hedge our bets and we cover, our, 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 we cover up and we, and we try to simply divide and conquer. And so where do we stand as a church then? Because not only is our country divided, 
But the church is divided too. Like the church is, is struggling with this. And I heard another pastor say it like this, like there are two football teams on the football field. One is going one direction and their goal is on the opposite side. And there's another one, their goal is on the opposite side. Both of them want to win. But there's another group on the field, the officials. And the official's job isn't to be subjective on who they think should win. The job as the official is to use a higher authority to determine how should we operate in the middle of this game. There will be a loser, there will be a winner. How do we do this fairly and accordingly and how do we act justly in the middle of all this? And the church, our job, we can be a part of the political spectrum, but we have a higher authority. And the final authority can't be for us just to drive the ball down the opponent's throat. The goal as a church is how do we how do we be the salt of the earth? So Jesus said, you're the salt. Salt, the same word where we get salary, your salary comes from the root word that was the Hebrew for salt. And salt was given, it was, they would pay soldiers in salt. Why salt? Because salt was a beautiful commodity that we just pour over everything these days. But back in the day, it was so hard to come by because you couldn't mine it easily. That's how you got paid. Why was salt so valuable? Because salt would penetrate. Salt would penetrate through. And you can put a little bit of salt in water. You can change the whole contents of that glass of water. Salt would purify. It has a medicinal quality to it. Salt in a wound may sting, but salt has a purifying component to it, especially before modern medicine. Salt preserves. Because they didn't have refrigerators and ice trucks, Salt, would you would pack your meat within salt and it would preserve and give long-lasting life to that, to that meat. Uh, salt purifies and it preserves and it protects. Um, salt can also become polluted. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless and it's trampled on the ground. It's just dirt. And as a church, we can't get this wrong. As the body of Christ, we can't just go into another election cycle kicking butt and taking names. We've got to understand, we've got to understand as a church, how are we called to be in the world, but not just of the world? How do we engage politics, but also understand Jesus' perspective? And so as a church, I want you to know, where does Timber Creek stand in all this? Where does our church stand on this whole spectrum of of uh, progressiveness or liberalism or, or, or heavy conservative views. Let's take politics aside and I want you to know that this church is theologically conservative. Now, theologically conservative, here's what that means. We believe the word of God is the final authority of life here. That, that you can have opinions and you can have emotions and you can have feelings and it's okay but at the end of the day, the word of God is the moral compass for every decision we should make. It is the breath of God to us, his word, his will through the word of God. And when our life or when our culture or when our emotions don't align with the word of God, it is not our job to change the word of God or dilute the word of God. It's our job to do business with us. That The word is the foundation, not how I feel about a situation. Okay, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And as a theologically conservative church, we believe there is a heaven. We believe there is a hell. 
We believe that people have the capacity to sin. We're, we're in a fallen, broken world. And the only way to fix your sin is to not do enough Hail Marys and it's not to do enough good works and it's not to give a certain amount of money in the offering. The only way to fix your sin, you can't fix it. You can't fix it. You have to have it washed away. And the only way it's washed away is by what Jesus has done for you as a gift. Not that you could earn it because then you'd be all about what you did. So we believe grace is what saves us, the grace of God. We believe truth sets you free. And Jesus came in grace and in truth. And so we're gonna preach the grace of God and we're gonna preach the truth of God's word. We're theologically conservative because there are churches that would bend more towards theologically progressive. The word of God is good, but it's a book that gives us advice. It doesn't give us a standard for living. And you can find churches, even in this zip code, that would lean that way. So my job as your pastor, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you right now, I could get up here and I could preach in a way that we could get all Republicans coming to Timber Creek. I could, I could do it. I preach to the choir, Republicans. I could do it where I get all Democrats coming to the church. I just preach on a few things. I could get all Democrats. I would prefer to be theologically conservative, but politically diverse. And what that means is we as a church are not going to lean hard right and we're not gonna lean hard left. In fact, what we're gonna do is we're gonna follow the word of God. It says lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he is the one that makes the paths straight. So that's where we're gonna lean. We're gonna lean not on just our own understanding or preferences or opinion or the way we've always done it or the way the cultural says, culture says do it or the way culture says don't do it. When we start getting dragged by the, by the ponytail, culture grabs the church by its ponytail, we're in big old trouble. We're in big trouble. The church is in, yeah, I'm glad the four-year-olds are getting something out of this political conversation. So for the rest of the time, I want us to take a poll. We're going to do some voting today, all right? We're going we're gonna to vote yes. We're going to vote it down. We're going to vote it up. We're going to vote it down. Uh, and I'm going to show you how to vote on these things, okay, on these things. As a Christ follower, all right, if you're taking notes in your worship guide, you can kind of fill in these blanks. As a Christ follower... Okay, let's, let me show you how we should vote on this. Should I have an opinion about politics? Like as Christians and we're the salt of the earth, I mean, but how much should we be, should the church kind of stay? I mean, isn't it the whole separation of church and, and state? You don't even understand what you're talking about when you say those words. Just, try, just, I don't even have time to unpack that that's not in any single legal document. That's a letter written by one of our founding fathers to a pastor about making sure that the government stays out of the church, not the church stays out of government. Just, just know that. But should I have an opinion? Yeah. Yes, you should have an opinion. And it's okay to share your opinion. And you've got to remember, it's important to understand that the great nation we're living in today was not, it does not have its greatness because of a political party, but it actually have its greatness because of its Christian roots. That, that it was the church, the body of Christ moving forward, believing that the word of God was the foundation for every important institution. 
starting back at 1620 when the Mayflower was blown off course and didn't land in Virginia, those pilgrims began to set up camp. And way before, 150 years before the Constitution, they wrote a self-governing document. And the beginning of that document didn't start with we the people. It started with in the name of God for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith. It wasn't in the name of God to get away from the king. It was moving forward to make sure that biblical, godly principles is what they were gonna found a new place on. In 1641, the very first education law, and I quote in that law, to ensure children would be able to read and understand the scriptures. It's great to understand Y equals MX plus B, slope-intercept form. And I always use that because it's the only formula I know out of all my school, and I don't even know how to apply it, okay? I don't even know how to do all Y equals MX whatever, okay? But I say it because it makes me sound a little smart until I tell you that I don't know it. I mean, education was to The first university was, was created for the purpose of developing young ministers. This, the first university in American soil was actually birthed out of an estate given by a pastor. He gave his retirement to start this university. And for over 150 years, that university, the very first university in America, was dedicated to building up ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ. That pastor's name was John Harvard. Harvard University, 150 years, the very first it was all dedicated. Now what we see is the university has become a cross-section of all, all kinds of viewpoints. It's why, it's why we want to reach people that are in the college. It's like we love our SFA students over at Nacogdoches and right here in Lufkin. Like we, we love our SFA students. We love the college. We want to be an influence because the intersection of opportunity and economy and growth and, 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 and theology and philosophy and thoughts and family, that's a huge place where people come together. And the very first university has its moorings in Christian faith. The Quakers and the Puritan ministers, not the Republicans or the Democrats, they were the first that led the fight against slavery in America. 93% of our founding fathers, 93% were professing Orthodox Christians. The three branches of our government, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branches. So the, the, the House and the Senate, the, the, the courts and the White House, the executive piece, that came not from a good idea from some founding father by themselves. That is based in scripture, Isaiah 33. For the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. And he will care for us and save us. Now, if you understand the true mechanics of our government, it is, it is when working right and when under the understanding of an almighty God, it is the most brilliant piece of mechanics, governmental mechanics that exist on the globe. Why? Because it's got, it's got some, it's got the Christian undergirdings. The word of God is a foundation. And all of that to be said, 62% though of voting Americans, 62% of voting, I'm not talking about Christians, I'm just talking about voting Americans. 62% believe faith has little to do with their voting decisions. I mean, faith really shouldn't get in the way. We're not electing a national pastor. We're electing a president. Thank God. I mean, if you want one of those guys to be your pastor, by all means. Faith has little to do with their voting decisions. Okay, try to get married that way. 
See if faith has little to do with your marriage decisions and see how that's gonna work for you, right? And the scripture is very clear. See, God's not gonna do the voting for you, but he does invite himself, if you're willing, he invites himself into the equation. Faith has little to do with their voting decisions. Isaiah, they set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. And although that is written for the nation of Israel and Jerusalem and and, and bondage and turmoil, they had turned their back on God. Does this sound familiar at all? Like, we do the same today. And Jesus is inviting us to let him inform us versus us inform him. You know what a promise of God is to that same nation that, that we're setting it up without my approval? Here's what he says. He says, I'm gonna restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. In other words, they had become corrupt in their government. They had become corrupt. And he says, if you'll let me, I will help restore. It's gonna be your choice, but if you'll follow me, I'll, I'll, I'll restore. And here's what he says. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Understand righteousness. Righteousness is, is what we're right living because of what Jesus has done. You don't earn your righteousness, but because of what Jesus did, you become right with God and you live righteously following the teachings of Jesus. But here it says a city of righteousness. Whoa, he's talking about there's more of a corporate expression. Do you know that we're not, we, we so are in love with individualism today. But understand the word of God was written in an Eastern mindset, which is very much more tribal and village driven and corporate driven. They made decisions, you know, so like the guy down the road could spank your child and that'd be okay. But today we'd be like, we better back off, like, you know, and some of that's appropriate not to have that anymore. Okay. Like nobody ought to be just walking around spanking your kid in Walmart. Okay. Some of you, they deserve it. (laughs) But like, you know, Bob and produce ought not to be laying a hand on my kiddo, okay? But, but understand that even he's saying righteousness is not just an individual thing. It, it, it's, it's like a corporate thing. And if, if you will follow my lead, I can actually restore righteousness in the city. Whoa. Proverbs says it like this. Righteousness exalts a what? Not a person, not a family. We want, we, I want to have a righteous family, that does the right thing according to God's word. But righteousness will exalt a nation. But sin condemns any people. So you can live a right life, a holy life, a righteous life. But if the majority choose to move away from righteousness and into whatever feels good for them or whatever expands their own agenda, right, wrong, uh, according to God's word or not, sin will condemn all of us. So what do we do with this? How do we engage politics as, as a church, as Christ followers? Should we have an opinion? Yeah, but here's how you get to your opinion. You have to engage and filter yourself biblically. We live in a day and age where everybody wants to filter themselves based on how they feel, what they heard, how they were raised, what is the majority rule, majority morality, what doesn't push other people's buttons, what their truth is versus what your truth is. And again, as a theologically conservative church, we believe the word of God is the final authority for our lives. And so we engage. If that's not you, that's fine. 
but you're going to struggle with this church. You're going to struggle. You're struggle because we're going to start with the filter of God's word. And then the way I address my emotions, the way I address my marriage, the way I address my conduct, my character, and my conviction has to come through the lens of the word of God and the teachings of Jesus therein. So my question for you is, are you willing to evaluate your politics as they stand right now through the filter of biblically based faith? Or are you like, anybody else in the rooms that can you have the tendency to create a version of faith that supports your politics? I, I love Jesus and I, his word is true until something in his word comes against how I feel or what I think or the popular opinion of the day. And then I kind of, I tweak it a little bit because that doesn't make sense in today's day and age. The Bible's good for that, 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 but it's not all encompassing. It's not all God breathed. And what can happen is we filter ourselves through our opinion and the majority rule in culture and it, and it muddies up it muddies up who Jesus really is and what his word really says. Let me come back. Remember when I said 93% of our founding fathers were professing Orthodox Christians? Yeah, isn't that great? Isn't that powerful? Yeah, some of them owned slaves. Some of them were slave owners and were professing Orthodox Christians. How does that happen? How, how, how can you disconnect the, the made in the image of God and, and read your Bible and pray every day and devalue human life like that when you allow cultural norms and politics to filter your faith? And they loved God and owned slaves because they let their politics filter the value of human life versus the word of God choosing what they should really believe and be about. Some of them... They may not have even known it just the way things were at the time and they didn't take time to evaluate. What does God really feel and say about that? So, I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, how could a Christian, even in today, how could they devalue human life by supporting slavery, right? But both, both parties are dealing with some tensions here. How could a Christian devalue human life as they acquiesce to abortion on demand? Abortion on demand, I want to say the, the key word here is not the word abortion. The key word is acquiesce. And, and, and here's what I mean. From the biblical perspective, you were knit in your mother's womb. That before the foundations of the earth were formed, the lamb of God was slain. So before even the foundations, God had plans for you, designs for you. And when I say acquiesce, I don't mean like full-blown support, grab your megaphone, I think abortion's great for everybody. But what can happen is, because we believe with so many other things on one side or the other side, we can acquiesce or we can reluctantly be okay with certain things. And that's dangerous. Devaluing human life is a, is a dangerous place that doesn't align us with God's work. Okay, oh, well, let's not stop there. How could a Christian devalue human life based upon immigration status? And the way we talk about, I'm not talking about a criminal. I'm talking about an immigrant who came here illegally. And yet, based on their legal status, we don't see them as a person. We see them as an animal. 
And a party can lean into devaluing human life just because it doesn't align with your political party. If you think that this is a a, a competition or an election between good, strong, moral excellence on one side versus the other, you're not seeing clearly. Everybody got issues up in this mug. I'm gonna tell you right now. Everybody got issues. How could a Christian devalue? How could a Christian just devalue human life? Period. How can we do that? When we allow cultural norms and political preferences to to filter our thoughts, filter our Facebook, filter instead of God's word, we get into trouble. And you know what? We start getting into arguments crazy. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon about the, the issue of racism. And it was interesting how people behind the scenes, some 90 plus percent incredibly positive towards that message. Couple of people. Like, you've gone to the dark side. You, you've, you've, sold, you've sold your opinion to popular opinion. Crazy. I said, hey, go find another church. That's okay. Like, uh, it, it's all right. If this isn't going to be you. In between services, I'll just be honest with you. Had a great conversation with a guy, but he was like, I, I, I think this church too watered down what you just preached. We, I, we need to have the, the, I said, hey, this is probably not the church for you. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. Because I'm not going to lean right and I'm not going to necessarily lean left and I'm not going to try and do that. I'm going to have my own opinions and I'm going to vote for who I'm going to vote for. But in the meantime, we're not going to lean on our own understanding as a church. And I'm inviting all of us to filter through the lens of faith. Now, why do people struggle with this? Why do people struggle with this? When I talked about racism a while back, do you know what are the arguments that that, that we get? Do you know what black people can hear? Don't black people understand that more black people kill black people than cops kill black people? Don't they understand that? And that's the argument? How about every life is precious? And whether it's one color killing the same color or it's a cop killing a certain color, it doesn't matter. There are perverted, horrible people of every color. There are perverted, horrible people in every walk from medicine to preaching to law enforcement. And we got to value human life. Got to value people. But why do we struggle with this? Because we're people. And Jesus knew it. In fact, Luke 9, Jesus is with his disciples and the disciples struggled with devaluing human life. Jesus sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village, people different than him, different than the Jews, different than the disciples, and they were gonna get things ready. They were like, checking the mic, checking the mic, one, two, setting up the tent. They were plastering the posters, big revival service, Jesus walks on water, you know, like all this stuff is gonna happen in Samaria. And, and, and Jesus shows up and here's, here's what happened. The people there did not welcome him. Is that how you live your marriage? Jesus isn't welcome there. Ugh. Is that how you live your life? People didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. He, had a, he, he was going somewhere and they didn't like his kind. They didn't agree with his message. They, didn't, they, didn't, they preferred someone else. And you know what? The disciples, they got ticked off about that. What? You don't want us to come in and do a revival in Samaria? You don't even know who you're talking about. You don't even know what he's done. You see, he was going to feed 5,000, but I guess not. Go get your Chick-fil-A somewhere else. Here's how the disciples, disciples James and John, when they saw that they weren't going to be welcomed in Samaria, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? 
Would you like us to pray, not our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, but Father, get him, get him good. And Jesus is like, yes, yes, that's part of my prayer. No, no, here's what Jesus did. He turned and rebuked them. The people that didn't even, they didn't, they didn't want him. They didn't want him. You don't have to fight Jesus' battles for him, everybody. You're called to be salt. But you don't have to, def- you don't have to fight for He fights his own battles. The battle's his, the victory's yours. But, the, but look, look, then he and his disciples went to another village. And let me, just, let me just say something to you. Even though we were founded as a Christian nation, even though we have biblical anchors as the foundation, what makes you think that Jesus is going to stick around where he's not welcome. Just because we were founded on godly principles, so is the nation of Israel. And they turned a cold shoulder time and time and time again. I want to tell you, I want to tell you, he has no problem blessing those that put him first. That's what he does. Do you think it's a coincidence that 4% of the world's population lives in America and America is the most prosperous nation, even with its own issues, still the most prosperous. If you make more than $36,000 right now, you are in the top 1% of the globe. Maybe not the top 1% of this economy, but you're in the top 1% of the globe. That God has, God has blessed in multiple ways, but righteousness will exalt a nation. Sin condemns any people. Again, I want to ask you, the disciples got it wrong. We get it wrong. I've gotten it wrong. Man, when I was younger, I loved to, to like fight over stuff, fight over stuff. And, and the older I get, the less I'm interested in, 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 in fighting over, over things. But I still want to have a strong enough opinion to hopefully influence culture. My question for you, are you willing to evaluate politics with the filter of biblical-based faith? Or are you creating a version of faith that supports your politics? Next question, let's vote. As a Christ follower, should I debate a point on politics? Should I get into debate? The answer is yes. That's okay. That's okay. Like the Pharisees and Jesus, they like, you know, debated. That there was questions that they had to ask. They they went back and forth. They had healthy debate. Should you just argue all the time? No, no. But can you debate? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, here's what's crazy about debate. Let me help you from a Christian perspective and from a standpoint of a church, okay? Your opinion, guess what? It makes perfect sense to you, to you. And here's what's crazy, okay? Shocker, their opinion makes perfect sense to them. So, Here's where you come to an issue in debating politics. When you don't know how they could ever support such an opinion or such a person or such a political party, when you don't know how they could possibly even think about it, guess what that is? That's something you don't know. That's something you don't know. That's it. You don't know how they could even possibly. So instead of just running your thumbs on Facebook... You and I need to learn how to disagree. We got to learn how to disagree. Can I encourage you? We got 56 some days. Like, be a student, not a critic. 
Some of you are blue because you were born blue. And some of you are red because you were born red. And that's it. You don't know a lick about policy. You, you, don't, even under, you don't even have a clue. But because you were born red or you were born blue, you're just going to go for it. It just is what it is. Daddy was, grandpa was, great, great grandpa. I remember walking through the living room in Arkansas, Violet Hill, Arkansas, population 38, 45 if you include the, the cows. Walked through the living room, my dad, young, in his early 20s, it was probably 28, 29, I was eight or nine years old. And he was having a conversation with my papa, my great grandpa, my papa, Tate. Papa was wearing a, a t, uh, uh, what, what do you call them? A tank top, white tank top. There's all kinds of things we call those, but there's a white tank top and, and underwear. And, and he had a big old scar right here. He's had a couple of open heart surgeries. And, and he just sat there all day long, just like this, just like that. But ever, whenever he'd get frustrated, his head, he's like, slow it down, Bessie. Like, and they were having a political conversation. And Papa Tate was saying this. I remember, I'll never forget Papa Tate. Oh, I never thought I'd see the day that a Republican would enter the family. Oh, God. And, and they were in tension right there. And, and one thing they learned is they learned how to disagree. So here's how, you, here, here's, what, here's how you can learn to disagree. Here's some questions you can ask. How do you see this? How do you see this? And just ask. Whether they have an opinion that's like yours or not, who cares? How do you see it? This is what Jesus does when the, the professional lawyer comes to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, how do you see it? How do you see it? You tell me. And they have a conversation about it. How do you see this? What led you to that view? What led you? Have you always held that view? Would you ever be open to hearing a different view? Now, if you want to get a little salty, and I don't mean like you're the salt of the earth, but you want to get a little trashy, then you say, well, have you ever met him or her? <laughs> you know, oh, you haven't? Oh, really? So you really can't totally like... Because I guess you get most of your info from the media, right? How about, you know, I, I get most of my information from the media. Don't you get it? Like, and we all know that there's issues in all that. No, 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 no. CNN is God's get Fox News is right from heaven. Like, <laughs> so learn how to disagree. Learn how to just have a conversation these days. Nobody's opinion is changing because you post another meme. Let's talk. As a Christ follower, next. Should I argue my point at the expense of my influence? Influence is what shifts the behavior or convictions or even character. I don't want to argue with my kids at the expense of my influence. I don't want to argue with my spouse at the expense of my influence. <laughs> I mean, she might be a little bit different. She may not care. She loves to argue with me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Should I argue my point? The answer is no. No, don't, don't, don't lose your influence with people just because you want to drive home the point and then lose relationship. But that's what's happening. And year by year, we're getting farther left and we're getting farther right. And I want to say, it's really hard to solve problems way over there or way over here. It's really hard to solve problems. It's really hard to love people way over here or way over there. And I'm gonna tell you, you're not gonna find the true essence of Jesus way over there or way over here. 
As a matter of fact, what we are getting, I've already talked about nothing divides like it. We're getting division. And here's the problem. Jesus saw this coming. Not an election, he saw division. He saw this division coming. It's why he gave us his word. And as I wrap up today, I wanna, I wanna show you this. Jesus is a couple hours from being kissed on the cheek in betrayal. He's a couple of hours of being thrown into an ox cart, hauled off to a, 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 a crazy um, governmental hijacking uh, assassination of his character. His, his beard is plucked out. A crown of thorns to mock him is placed on his head. He's beaten within an inch of his life, naked in front of people with a whip. Later, Pontius Pilate stands up and Jesus, beaten and wounded and half naked, and Barabbas, a known criminal, he says, which would you like to elect? Which would you like to elect to be free? And they chose Barabbas over Jesus. And Jesus has to carry his own cross to the point of exhaustion. He's totally God, but he's totally human. And another man has to carry because he's so close already to death. And it's just hours before all of that that Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's washing their feet and he's serving them and he's showing them the kingdom of heaven and he begins to pray. He begins to pray. And here's his, here's his, here's his prayer. If you were about ready to go through all that and you knew it was coming, what would your prayer sound like? Let me tell you what Jesus' prayer sounded like. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. If it were your hour or if it were my hour, here's how I would pray. God, save me from all this. Is there another way? Help me, protect me, bring your angels. But what did Jesus pray? He, he prays this, not save your son, not help your son. He says, glorify your son. May you... May you show the world who you are through me that your son may glorify you. And he knows what's coming. He goes on to pray. This is his, this is his prayer. I'll remain in the world no longer. He was gonna die, raise, and ascend into heaven in 40 days. But they're gonna still be in the world. So his prayer is for them, for them. And here's his prayer. Holy Father, protect them. He's the one about ready to get beaten. He's the one about ready to be crucified. He's the one about ready to be mocked and spit on. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that, so that they'll get them back, so that they'll advance in force and take over this Pontius Pilate rule in Rome. No, 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 no. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. His prayer was for unity with his believers. Now watch, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. There are so many people that are watching the way you behave, watching the way you act, and they are determining the value of Christian faith on your behavior. Right or wrong, fair or not, it's why people say the church is full of hypocrites because they watch the way we act and they will either believe in that message or they will stiff arm it. Jeez. Jesus, help us. 
And why? Why that all would believe in me through their message? So that all of them may be one. Unity in the church. Unity equals anointing. Unity doesn't have to be uniformity. We all don't have to think the same. But I do invite us, if we're gonna truly be Christ followers, we do have to start at the same place. And that's the word of God is the moral compass for our lives. So what do we pray? You know what? You know why Jesus prayed for it? Can you imagine being in a small group where it's you, it's Bob, it's Keith, and it's Jesus? Like that's a pretty, pretty overwhelming men's group, right? And like Bob says, like, you know, the, the leader says, anybody got a prayer request? And Bob says, yeah, I need to sell my truck. I've been trying to sell that thing for, forever. And I was like, hey, I just want a good, I just want the dear lease to be exactly what it's supposed to be. I am so ready to get away and get over there. Can you just pray for the dear lease? I just want to get a really good one this time. And Jesus goes, I have a prayer request. Jesus, you got a prayer request? Yeah, yeah. I want to pray for unity in the church. That's Jesus' prayer request. I want to pray for unity. Not, not uniformity, I'm praying for unity. That they would be one. Why did he pray for it? Because it, it takes supernatural surrender to self. Because it's a supernatural thing. He could have just said, let me just encourage you guys. You know, you all play fair now. He had to pray for it because it's something that comes supernaturally, not normally. What normally comes is divisiveness and us saying, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them? That comes more naturally. Unity is supernatural. So we got to pray for unity, write it down, in order to influence many so yeah, I, I could definitely lean this church right. I could lean this church left. Some of you would leave, some of you would cheer. But Jesus is in the messy middle where he receives us as we are, not as we should be. And we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And not one particular party has it all right. And not one particular party has it all wrong. But we need the word of God because that's the foundation. So as a Christ follower, should I jeopardize a relationship over politics? Should I, should I say, should my dad have kept on going after Paul Paul Tate and given him his third open heart? My dad never brought up politics again because he chose relationship over the agenda. There's all kinds of other things. Do you know I have sat next to, I have stood beside future widows We're watching their husband or their wife take their last breaths, having last conversations. I've stood there. The blessing of a pastor, I get to be in the intersection of new life and I'm in the intersection of death, the intersection of marriage and sometimes the intersection of divorce. And not once have I stood at the bedside of someone in their last words saying, I gotta call Rusty. I really wanna talk to him about tax reform. What more often happens, oh, I wish I would have not let that one stupid little issue keep me from talking to my son for years. Some of them being political. Jesus, help us to focus on what matters most. Don't jeopardize relationships over politics. No, 
No, you wouldn't do that. Look, 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 look. Listen to me. The good news is your vote counts. Your vote counts. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You ought to be getting out and vote. That's why not only do we have cupcakes and keychains today, woohoo, but we also at our locations have a place where you can register to vote in the lobby. October 5th or 8th is like the deadline. You've got a little bit less than a month to register to vote. If you don't know if you're registered, go and talk to our, our people there. It, it doesn't matter how you're registering. We're just inviting you to fill it out and we'll help you register to vote. Your vote counts, but guess what doesn't? Your opinion doesn't. Like your opinion, I mean, you can have an opinion. Everybody's got a couple, like armpits and they smell. Your opinion, your opinion doesn't count in this election. So why, why, it would be a tragedy that your strong opinion would drive a wedge between you and your coworker that they are defriending you on Facebook, not wanting to talk to you around the cubicle, not avoiding you because of your crazy, uh, passionate, and maybe deservedly right politics, but you have put a wedge between you and this person, and when they are going through hell on earth, you could have been the salt but you drove a wedge in between it because you were more passionate about getting the dadgum opinion right versus showing people who Jesus is. So what do we do? Look, both candidates say they love God. Both candidates say they love God. That's an internal thing. That's, that, a lot of people say, Lord, Lord. But that's why God calls us to love people too. That love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but also love your neighbor. So we love God here, but the way we prove that we love God is by our fruit. The way we prove that we love God is the way we love one another, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that doesn't love doesn't know God. And so candidates can say they love God. How are they treating people on both sides? Demonstrate love unconditionally in your relationships. Don't let your red or your blue keep you away from just loving people. I'm not saying approve of sin. If the Bible's against it, you can still love someone unconditionally. You can still love them. You can still love them. Love them. And we almost would, would people would question our love because we're afraid that we're just gonna prove their sin. So we stop loving people versus loving people and letting Jesus know our heart there. Demonstrate love. Your candidate is going to win or lose based on an election on November, or your candidate is going to be contested or not in November. Who knows what in the world is going to happen? The church is going to win or lose based on how you behave through the process. Your candidate's going to win or lose. The church is going to win or lose based on your behavior. And remember, it was not a political party that shaped Western civilization, it was Jesus and his teachings. What would happen? What would happen? Think about this. Just dream with me. It's pie in the sky, but dream. Dream with me, Nack. What would happen if for eight weeks, 56 days, just, just, just think about it. If everybody on the planet, everybody on the planet loved their neighbor, like truly just loved their neighbor, you would wake up like, I mean, everybody be walking around, walking on sunshine, masks or no masks. Candidates or no, your candidate or their candidate, if we loved our neighbor as ourself, it would radically, I guess Jesus' words are pretty important. It would change everything. So you, we can't make that difference in the whole world, but guess what? You can make a difference in your world. You can't determine 
whether Jolene loves her neighbor for the next eight weeks. But I can determine whether I love my neighbor for the next eight weeks. And you can sit there and say, they don't love their neighbor. Or you can just say, as for me and my house, we're gonna love people. As a Christ follower, last question. Am I hoping for the right kingdom? (laughs) Even Adam and Eve wanted their own kingdom. God's word was the foundation. The enemy comes in and says, I know that's God's word, but did God really say like, you can be as wise, you can be as smart. And so they decided that they would build their own kingdom where they were on the throne. So they would eat the apple, gain the wisdom, gain the knowledge, and they could be on the throne. And ever since the beginning of the garden, we've been wrestling with who is king. Let me tell you where God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is wherever Jesus is king. If he is not king in your home, your home is not the kingdom of God. If Jesus is not the king of your heart, he is not, your heart is not in the kingdom. And that's why Jesus says, when you pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you hoping for the right kingdom? Even the disciples, they struggled. They they thought Jesus was gonna set up this whole kingdom like right there in Jerusalem. And and like, Jesus, when you overthrow this and you overthrow that and everybody's killed and we're in charge, can I sit? You know, even moms were coming in and saying, could my son like sit next to you in the throne room? If, If it's not next to you, like maybe the third chair or the fourth chair, maybe, I don't know, right? Like they were wanting to build the kingdom. And so they were shocked when Jesus died. I thought you came to win, Jesus. I thought you came to win. They didn't know Jesus was going to die. He said, no, no, no. I, here's, how I, here's how I win. I lose. So you win. I humble myself. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men. I, I'm going I'm to show you an upside down kingdom. And do you know that 20% of the New Testament was written in prison? And we're all about our freedoms and about our rights as Christians even. The church is fighting a culture war. Understanding that Persecution actually will move the church forward? Should we have our rights? Should we fight? Yes. It's okay to debate. It's okay to stand up. It's okay to be salt. But just know, 20% of the Bible of the New Testament was written in prison. 100% was written under severe governmental persecution of the church. 100% of the New Testament. And so Paul, Paul has a kingdom-minded focus and he's writing in prison. In prison, he writes this letter. He says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. See, he saw his chains, but his chains weren't the chains of Rome. His chain, hey, God put me here and that's okay. This is where God has me. I'm gonna leverage this right now for the kingdom because his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A prisoner for the Lord. Here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Christians, walk in a manner worthy. Post as a manner worthy. Talk about debate in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called Christian, not just Republican, not just Democrat, Christian. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, not being a bear to one another, bearing with one another in love because some people, they don't get your side and you don't get their side, but we bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the what, everybody? unity because unity equals anointing and the truth is Jesus didn't come to take sides he came to take over and if you will allow 
the number one kingdom that matters most and that's your heart. To let Jesus sit on the throne of your heart and filter every other policy from kingdom-minded surrender to Jesus, the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings. He'll take over for you. He'll fight your battles for you. Be engaged, be salt. Trust him, lean not. And his kingdom will be done right here. Starting here. All of our locations, would you just close your eyes and pray with me today? Maybe that's your issue. Regardless of how you feel about politics, regardless of how you feel about the culture, let's talk about the culture of your heart. If you need Jesus to be your king, he doesn't expect you to go through all of these steps. He went through all the steps. Because if you went through steps to get to him, then all of a sudden it would be about what you do and not what he did. So he paved the way and paid the way for you and for me. And it requires a step of faith for you to believe he is who he says he is, that his kingdom is better than your kingdom that you could ever build. His kingdom is better and stronger and worth being under his rule and his reign. And in order to place yourself underneath his reign and his rule, you simply say, Jesus, be my Lord, be my savior. I surrender to what you would say versus what I say. I surrender to the way you view life versus the way I view life. I want you to be the center of my life and let my moral compass be what you have said. And so I surrender to you. Thank you, Jesus, for not being mad at me today, but for loving me so much. You would give me this moment to make things right with you. And as your heads are bowed and eyes are still closed, for those of you can we do a little evaluation for a moment? Have you allowed any area to be filtered through political agenda versus God's word? And if that's the case, let's just take a moment. Okay, God, I'm gonna step back. Your will be done and your kingdom come. Can we pray for unity? Lord, it seems impossible right now but you prayed for it, so we're gonna pray for it. Unity in the church, unity somehow to find, find a place where we can come to agreement on some things. We're so divided and a house divided cannot stand. Lord, we pray for righteousness that would exalt this nation, that you would forgive us of our sin. You would heal our land. You would forgive us of our wickedness. God, help us to not blindly walk into these things, but to get your counsel and to see things from a biblically based faith. Ultimately, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that come Wednesday, on the first Wednesday of November, it don't matter who's in the White House or who's not. You are still King. You are still Lord. There is no one like you. There has never been anyone like you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can trust you. You are good. You are king. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.